Alright guys, so I had one request. I don't know if I saved the um the comment. So I do read all your comments. Uh one request wanted me to react to the firing line uh with Thomas Owell and William F. Buckley. So I just want to say off the bat, um both of these people if you're not familiar with thomas Sowell or william f buckley both of these people are conservatives in fact william f buckley back in 1965 had a famous debate with james baldwin and in that debate william f buckley accused james baldwin of putting on an accent a british accent because um British accents in America have always been seen as a, a form of being really smart and intellectual, but that's just how James has always talked. Um, and he did the same excuse that conservatives always use when they're talking about um, black prosperity in America. So back in 1965, William F. Buckley basically said that, well, he didn't basically say, he literally said that it's because of um, black people's culture. That's one of the reasons why black people can't get a hit. Again, this was in 1965. I think this was what, two years after the Civil Rights Act? The Civil Rights Act would happen in 1963, if I believe. And, um, and yeah, no, 64, it happened in 64. So this is a year after the Civil Rights Act. Um, this is also, we know, uh, mass incarceration. This is before mass incarceration. This is before the crack ep epidemic. This was um, during redlining. And so, and all of these things actually happened. So during this time, he's saying that, well, you know, the problem with black people, it's their culture. Now, all the the ills of what was happening specifically within black culture today, of course, um, they weren't the same back in, 19, uh, back in 1965. They weren't the same at all. And um, so, where am I going with this? Basically, it was the inverse. So like today we would say like of, amongst all the black women, 70% um, of black women who have children are single mothers. Like they, they never got married. They're just single mothers. And back in 1965, before mass incarceration and the crack epidemic, it was the inverse. Like most women were married and they, um, they had a cohesive nuclear conservative family. So firing line, I don't, I don't know what firing line is. I don't, I don't know. Cause this this was in 1981. I I, I wasn't born that, that even born at this time. So um, that but that's just to give you the background. So basically, this is kind of like um, Dave Rubin's show, the Rubin Report. But not to be insulting to William F. Buckley, um, William F. Buckley actually does do some pushback. Um, just letting you guys know, I have seen this. So I know that there, there was pushback from William F. Buckley. I don't know what they're going to talk about. 
I, Thomas Sewell is on, so I'm assuming that they're going to talk about statistics and um, Black America. And um, the the thing, if you watch any Thomas Sewell interview, they're pretty much the same. Like people will bring up statistics and he'll go, well, if you make a certain adjustment, then all that just goes away. And then they just move on from there. Like that's been his talking point and no one's ever challenged it. Um, so let's just, let's just start it. Oh, by the way, this is going to be a long one. I mean, already, you probably already know when you clicked on this, this is going to be a long one in the future. I'm going to try and, and make them as short, like at the most, like 15 minutes if I can, but, um, we will see other public television stations and by the following. Uh, Thomas Sowell is the closest thing this economic lot of minorities. Yep. All right. Let's do it. Uh, Thomas Sowell is the closest thing this century has come to on the order of an Emancipation Proclamation. He is a scholar who has devoted his labors to looking behind the cliches of abjection to sing out not that there is no such thing as racial discrimination on the contrary, not that there is an instantaneous route to the affluent, but that the color of an American skin is not a birthmark that commits him to substandard life. What is extraordinary is that the labors of Miss Soul, far from exciting the kind of enthusiastic reception one would expect, have met in some cases with near hysterical denunciations, even from some black leaders. <coughs> it is as if the head of the Anti-Slavery League had denounced Abraham Lincoln for signing the Emancipation Proclamation. Indeed, that proclamation meant that there would no longer be slavery, but it also meant that there would no longer be an anti-slavery league. Thomas Sowell was born in the South, but came North with his family as a boy, entered Stuyvesant High, from which he graduated going on to Marines, and then matriculating in Harvard. There he received a degree in economics, going on to Columbia for his master's, and to the University of Chicago for his doctorate. He has taught at Rutgers, at Howard, at Cornell, Brandeis, Amherst, was professor of economics at UCLA. He is now a senior fellow of the Hoover Institution at Stanford. He has written a dozen books, including most recently the two both published by Basic Books we will be discussing here today. They are Ethnic America and Markets and Minorities. Our examiner is Mrs. Harriet Pilpel, the well-known attorney, feminist, and scarifier, about whom more in due course. I should like to begin by asking Dr. Sowell whether his findings on, so to speak, the upward mobility of IQs runs counter to such findings as are associated with the work of Coleman Jensen at all. Certainly Jensen. Uh, well, Jensen and his critics seem to me to operate from a premise that there needs to be some unique uh, uh, explanation of the black IQ. Uh, and one finds it in environment, one finds it in heredity. Uh, what I tried to f look at was whether that uniqueness was there in the first place, whether the level of the black IQ or the pattern of the black IQ was significantly different from that of any number of other ethnic groups uh, in the past at a similar stage of their development. What I found was that there was not. Moreover, what I found was that as these various groups began to rise socioeconomically, uh, their IQs also began to rise. 
Uh, one of the most uh, striking things to me was that as of World War I, uh, Jewish soldiers uh, scored uh, well below the national average on mental tests in the Army. Uh, within a decade or so, uh, that had all changed. So that uh, it seemed to me to indicate that these uh, IQ levels are not something that are written in stone, uh, even for a large group. Uh, and that uh, as other th kinds of developments go on, you expect these kinds of developments also. I'd say I agree with him. Um, and this is interesting hearing him say this because like the whole bell curve fiasco that is something that's coming from the right as people who are like holding up the bell curve as, as some kind of like, well, see, you know, some groups, ethnic groups are smarter than others. Um, IQ, the way that they measure IQ, it has a lot to do with, um, like there are certain biases that are put into IQ and expectations of what you would assume is what a smart person would say or do. So if you have an IQ test, like if an IQ test was created by aboriginals or a tribe somewhere in Africa and they applied it to, you know, some kid from Boston, he will probably score relatively low versus that tribe putting forward that test to someone within that tribe's community or a neighboring tribe. So, uh, and then also, yes, IQs, they, they change. They're, they're kind of like, you know, um, political compass. You know, if, if you test your politics every five years or so, you will see that it's given to change. Um, some, for some people, it's radical. For others, it's not. Um, age has a factor. You may be very sharp when you're in your 30s, but if you're in your 70s, maybe that sharpness goes away. So, so I agree with Tom Swell. There's no difference in intelligence between um, black people, white people, and so forth. Um, but... He did point out, not but, also he pointed out that typically the the smarter you are, the higher your IQ, the more money you do make, which, you know, I, I, I like as a universal. Well, uh, your, your book uh, did make clear to me whether the IQ of someone can change or whether one has to wait a generation for such a change. <laughs> That's something that I haven't uh, looked at at the individual level. It does change from uh, just from one time that you take it to the next, of course, uh, and by significant amounts. The uh, IQ difference between blacks and whites is, uh, is 15 points, and there are groups uh, in the United States, uh, Polish-Americans come to mind, whose IQs have risen more than 20 points uh, in a period of two generations. The, the figures that, uh, that you cite, uh, I, I signaled out here the polls, which in 10 years went up to blacks went down six, we're talking now about roughly four and a half percent. The Mexicans went up five. Are those uh, are those uh, changes insignificant in terms of not being substantial enough to suggest anything? Well, one of the problems with the uh, data on blacks in that study was that uh, as you came forward, a higher percentage of the data turned out to be from southern schools where the IQs tend to be lower in general. 
And so that would tend to make that data uh, much tougher to generalize from. Well, let's get, uh, Dr. Sorrell, if we may, into uh, some, of the, some of the main theses that you propound uh, in this book. And when I say thesis, I think I should be careful to say finding, really, rather than yes. a thesis. It, it isn't a hypothesis. These are findings, or you assert that they are. Don't, don't yes. In other words, it, it is a history book. It is not a political book. It is not uh, uh, a message book. Or speculation. Uh, no. Uh, at the end of the book, I have one chapter in which I try to draw some conclusions from what's gone before. But there, uh, there's less politics in this book, for example, than in many of the reviews of the book that I've read. Well, let, let's uh, start in on the so-called myths of the Anglo-Saxons. It is widely supposed that the Anglo-Saxon is king in America, right? Yes. Now, in what sense do you disprove this? Uh, well, in terms of just of, mere, of sheer numbers, <coughs> that uh, Anglo-Saxons are about 15% of the population. So the notion of speaking of an Anglo-Saxon majority and then the various minorities around them uh, seems a little ludicrous when you call 15% uh, a majority and you call 13% uh, or 12% a minority. Uh, in terms of income, Anglo-Saxons have about uh, 5 or 6% higher incomes than the national average. But there are other groups, such as the Chinese, who have 12% higher, and Japanese, who have 32% higher, and Jews are higher than that. So that the notion that the Anglo-Saxons are uh, remarkable is... Uh, uh, not borne out by the data. Well, okay, so God damn it. When he's, when he's referring, keep in mind, when he's referring to Anglo Saxons, he's talking specifically of people from England. That, that's like a, you have Germans, you have um, people like the Swedish or, um, like the Scandinavian people that showed up. Um, there, there's so many groups. Like, keep in mind that he's talking specifically about Anglo-Saxons. Well, what about uh, the Anglo-Saxon uh, uh, occupying the select professions? There are, I think you said, 15% uh, so-called professional uh, uh, activities, teaching, lawyering, doctoring, so yes. forth. Now, how do the Anglo-Saxons make out, make out on that score? You have me at a disadvantage. The book does not include a chapter on Anglo-Saxons, and the data don't come to mind that readily. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't recall anything particularly startling in the numbers as I went through them. Well, you, 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 uh, you mentioned that uh, a 14 is, is, is average. West Indians come in at 15. Mm -hmm. uh, 15 percent of West Indians are lawyers, doctors, or teachers, whereas only 14 percent of whites are. 18% of Japanese are, 23% mm. of Filipinos are, and 25% of Chinese yes. are. So uh, 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 right, right there, an awful lot of icons have been busted, haven't they? Yes, yes. Yeah. It's amazing because the data that I use uh, are typically data that have been uh, in existence for some time and available to anyone who cared to go look it up rather than simply repeat what's been said before. Okay. Can we at least acknowledge that all of those groups are incredibly small. Like when you're talking about Anglo-Saxons, and you can, when you look at the proportion of the population, yeah, okay, 14% is in doctors, but there are tens upon tens of millions of them versus like maybe what, a million Chinese people, uh, less than that when you're talking about West Indian people, like, and because of that, because they are 
you know, the, the Chinese, West Indians, all of these groups, um, mainly Asian, are immigrants coming to America, they're going to push their children to go into fields that are um, high quality, not high quality, what's the word I'm looking for? Just like highly educated, high income brackets. Because if you're an immigrant, you probably have your own business or you're just you know, struggling with either your, your business or your job or whatever, because you're new to this country, you're starting from scratch, you're gonna indoctrinate your children to be studious and become a doctor or a lawyer. You know, it's a, it's a stereotype actually. Uh, so he, he's treating like, as though there are like equal numbers of Anglo-Saxons, equal number of Chinese and West Indian and all of that. I think it's just, I think it's absurd. Okay, now, now we want to look into some of the causes of uh, uh, high reimbursement for one's work and low reimbursement for one's work. Uh, it is, well, it is, gen it is generally, for instance, uh, assumed that the white man makes a lot more than the black man. You go on to say this is only in part in even to to this day, as far as net worth, a white family, on average, has $170,000 of net wealth, and the black family has $17,000, $17,000 in net worth. Like, the way he framed it, just kind of like, what are we talking about? It's often assumed that white people have more money. True. Would you elaborate on that? Yes, that uh, it's true in general. If you then try to find out why is it true, uh, is it true simply because all blacks or a substantial part of blacks, regardless of education, uh, cannot get jobs in their professions? The recent data, and this would not necessarily apply 20 or 30 years ago, uh, the recent data indicate, for example, that black West Indians uh, earn 94% of the income of the average American. Uh, if you take second generation black West Indians, they earn higher incomes than Anglo-Saxons. And so it's very hard to make the argument that the uh, white employer is looking into the genealogy of the black job applicant. Uh, it's very doubtful if he has any interest in it, much less that he's inquiring into it. Uh, it's simply that- Can we at least admit, like, okay, okay. I doubt that West, black West Indians have the exact same names as African-Americans. Can we at least put that out there? Can we at least acknowledge that West, uh, black West Indians probably had the wherewithal to maybe go to better schools to get those jobs that maybe an average African-American wouldn't be able to? I mean, it's not, it's, it's, when you look at the job application, you look at the name. If it's an African name, then you know that this person isn't black, they're African. You know, so you probably, if, if you, it's not like you're racist towards all, anyone who has dark skin. That's not how racism works. It's, it's, you know, I, there are Africans. There are Africans who are, I guess, racist to 
African-Americans because they see them as being, um, quote-unquote, uncivilized, to, to quote um, Bryson Gray. They see them as uncivilized and ratchet. So it's not a, a thing of skin color, but it's also just sort of the name and the scholarly acumen that that person may have. Other people who make that inquiry find these kinds of differences, which you then cannot attribute to the employer because he's probably uh, totally unaware of the whole situation. And by the same, by the same token, the uh, employer is in many instances not equipped to discriminate, say, against a Puerto Rican, even if he wanted to, right? Because there are no visual differences between well, well, Puerto Ricans, or Mexicans. There, or Mexicans right? there, there, there would be with some, and with others, there would not yeah, be. Yeah, there's no yeah. yeah. But uh, again, it's quite <laughs> easy to, to tell that black West Indians are black, and yet that doesn't seem to have the income effect that you would expect on the basis of the prevailing theories. Or that Chinese are colored or different from white. Yes, and, yes. And, and, and now there, there you, you go into some subsections. Uh, you, may, you, you, you point out that depending on where you come from in a foreign country also makes a considerable difference because you, you carry your ethos on your back, don't you? Yes, that if you look at the Chinese who came to the United States, let's say before World War II, uh, a very large percentage of those came from one district in one province in southern China. Uh, they brought with them a, Shanghai, a tradition which has existed in the United it's States, Hong Kong. perhaps more so than it does in China itself today. The people who have come in since World War II have largely not come from that same area. They've come in with a different set of uh, experiences. And Mainland China. Many of them are the poverty-stricken Chinese that you see in the Chinatowns of New York and San Francisco, working the very long hours, getting the very low pay, living in the slums, packed into the rooms, you know, s several people to a room, and so on. Again, it would be hard to make the argument that this is simply a matter of the way the American employer sees it. The American employer is probably totally unaware that there are two different kinds of Chinese. It's only the people who work with the data who make those separations and find this drastic difference. Mm -hmm. But the argument that this must derive from the employer uh, simply won't stand up to the facts. And, and the implications of that statement alone have, of course, to do with the sensitivity of the market, right? Yes. The market mechanism, as I understand it, is most reluctant to discriminate because it isn't interested in the color of a person's skin or his background, but is very much interested in what he will perform. Well, the, the market puts a price on discrimination. Yeah, there are people exactly. who will pay that price and continue to discriminate. Yeah. But uh, even in South Africa, if you look at the history of discrimination in South Africa, you find that there was less of it, let us say, um, around 1920, 1910, than there has been in recent decades. One of the reasons being that before the nationalist power Party first came to power in the 1920s, market forces had much more effect in South Africa than they do today. And it's been necessary in South Africa for the Nationalist Party to maintain its apartheid policies, uh, to engage in a massive government intervention in the market, repeatedly tightening up loopholes and so forth, because the employers tend to look for the loopholes. If there are blocks available at a lower price, it's to the employer's advantage to find the loophole. Uh, and in South Africa, ironically, there is, there is a quota system for whites, so that the employer has a certain minimum number of whites he must hire, and the employers do everything they can to evade those In that uh, direction, they are paying for discrimination. Yes. 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 But okay. <clears throat> so apartheid ended in around, what, 1994? It's just so bizarre listening to him in 1981 
like kind of rationalize like no the market forces will fix this it's just like and of course there's going to be a quota that you need to have a certain amount of white people because you're in you're in South Africa there are more like in America you have more white people than you have black people during this time what it was like 75% or something like that like a huge amount of white people then you had like 11 12% black people so if you were in a country where it was the inverse where you had like 13 percent white people I'm like, what, what, what's the demographics of yeah white people make up less than nine less like eight point like at the bare minimum nine percent of the entire population as of 2011 so yeah, if that's the case, then you would have quotas to make sure a business would hire a certain amount of white people because there's so many other black people who can potentially get that job. The employers tend, if they can get away with it, to hire more blacks rather than less. Now, you, you mentioned that um, uh, characteristically, <clears throat> it has been government that has enforced discrimination. We know that's true, of course, in the Oriental societies. We know it was true here right through and including Jim Crow. It yes. was here for the Navy. You pointed out See, this is what I don't like. And conservatives do this a lot. They separate the individuals that make up the government and they go, oh, it's the government. It's like, no, it's not. They're individuals who have a certain bias towards a group, whether it's women, black people, white people, Protestants, Catholics, or religion. It doesn't matter. They have biases. And the majority of them all come together and go, hey, we all don't like this group, right? It could be Jewish people, Catholics, Protestants. We don't like these people, right? And everyone goes, yeah, we don't like these people. Okay, let's pass some laws. And when you're living in a representative democracy, the people that are being put into government to enable these policies are by the, pop, the, the populace. The populace are like, yeah, we like these laws. We don't care that it hurts this group of people because we don't like these group of people. And they always separate. It's just like, oh, it's the government who does it, not the markets. The markets are okay. It's like the markets don't care. It's about making profit. Okay. And... The best way to make profit is to exploit people. So if you are about making profit and there's a group of people that everyone agrees, more or less, the majority of people agree that we don't like this group of people, no matter what they've done, then there are going to be policies put into place to ex exploit those people. out that 25% uh, of John Paul Jones' Navy was black, but none of the, none of the people in World War II in certain... Well, in 19, 1930, there were no blacks at all in the Navy, but in 1812, uh, yeah. John Paul Jones had a crew that was 25% black. Yeah. Uh, so it's a tremendous retrogression in that respect. Yeah, well, now, uh, I, it's, easy enough, it's easy enough to understand that an agent that exercises coercive power uh, could be driven to these rather nefarious purposes. Less easy to understand why it is that colleges and uh, foundations should be guilty of such behavior. Yet this exactly was your finding. Yes, that, uh, let's say at the period past prior to World War II, <clears throat> discrimination in the nonprofit sector uh, was even greater than in the profit sector. 
and the government being part of the nonprofit sector would be part of that. Uh, of course, the uh, nonprofit sector uh, lacks the same incentive uh, to hire people from uh, minority backgrounds. Uh, it is, in fact, the, the opportunity to make more profit by hiring uh, uh, with less regard to those things. That is the dr driving factor that tends to erode this. Uh, when you have an agency that is nonprofit, of course, they have no incentive. They, they, they may choose to hire only Scandinavians, even if that means a 20% higher uh, pay scale to get all the jobs filled with Scandinavians. Because if, for example, they're a public utility, that means they simply pass that on to the customers. We have no choice but to pay it. Right. Well, you, you maintained, uh, uh, or you, you, you said uh, an extraordinary figure that there were only three PhDs in the 1930s, uh, where, whereas by contrast there were 300 practicing chemists. Yes, uh, among mean, blacks. Did yes. you mean three PhDs in chemistry departments? No, no, I meant three PhDs, three black PhDs yeah. teaching in non-black colleges in the 1930s. All in, the in, same, any, in any field? In, in any field. And uh, the, fir the first black uh, uh, professor at a major university uh, was hired in 1940 uh, at the University of Chicago. Uh, so that uh, this is, and Jews also were uh, excluded from many uh, top colleges and universities during the same era. Uh, again, nonprofit organizations can afford to do this. Uh, when, when there's profit, the cost of doing it is much higher. It would be very hard, for example, for a, a basketball owner, no matter how racist he was, to try to operate without blacks. That's cherry-picked. Okay, we're talking about sports. We're talking about sports. Which side discriminates more, whether it's government or the private sector, is it's a non-sequitur. It doesn't matter where the which side discriminates more. The fact is that there's discrimination and how to uproot it. And also, historically, if we want to talk about um, which you know, whether it's government or um, the private sector, which discriminates more. Historically, for hundreds of years, we have proof that there was staunch systemic discrimination towards blacks in the private sector. We know that because they were slaves. So I don't... As, as, as you showed in the case of the Washington Redskins. Yes. Yes, because mm -hmm. there they had, they had a policy of trying to keep blacks off the team for a long time. And it so happened that almost all the leading running backs of that era were black. And, of course, as the Washington Redskins began to lose more and more games, uh, it wasn't very long before they decided they had better get uh, Bobby Mitchell uh, from Cleveland and put him in the lineup, as they, as they did. Well, uh, you, you grant, don't you, that discrimination... Racial discrimination is, in a sense, pandemic. You find it everywhere. Yes. You compared it yes. to oxygen at one point. Yes. Now, uh, can, can you tell me, using the non-market argument, why it is that the uh, fellows and professors of uh, Harvard and uh, Yale and Princeton and Cornell should have systematically excluded uh, blacks, or for that matter, Jews, during the 30s? I guess, the, the, again, part of the general antipathy you find among peoples around the world, but at a very low cost. Mm -hmm. It didn't cost them really anything to do that. Uh, but, you know, a chemical, because it was a biased market, you mean? No, I mean in the sense that they're a non-profit organization. They would get no higher or lower incomes whether they excluded blacks or did not exclude blacks. Mm -hmm. uh, the institution might end up paying more money because there might be some blacks who were available to fill some posts. They had to fill completely with whites and had to drive up the market by competition. But, of course, that was, not, that was no money out of their pocket. 
but a, but if someone in, a, in an employment situation, if an employer has that situation, then he loses money. Uh, and no matter how <laughs> biased he is, at some point or other, he has to figure out whether he can really afford uh, to be. No, no, you can. The, the, we we live in a country where it's like three hundred. Well, I don't know what the population was during nineteen eighties. But there are so many other people, like, you can afford to discriminate. Like, and, and, and this, this, this sort of, and what he's doing is, is he's playing up the private market with government. And if you're a right winger, of course, you hate government and government's evil. I, I feel like comparing the two, just like, well, this side discriminates more than the other side. And it's just, we're, we, we've gone off into this whole other thing. And it's, it's, Oh, the market isn't. We have 400 years. <clears throat> we have 400 years of proof that the private, the free market or private enterprises discriminate. We literally had to have laws to make sure that it, it wasn't the case. Quite as uh, biased as he wants to be. This, this was, if I remember, the reason for the subterranean enthusiasm by the merchandisers of Atlanta for for passing the civil rights law which forbade refusal of service to blacks because they wanted the business. Yes, in this case they went out. They, they wanted the business but they didn't want to declare they wanted the business because this had gotten into trouble socially. Yes, yes. So that would be another clear example. Uh, yes. In fact, one, one of the problems uh, is that the government itself has engaged in so much discrimination that it's difficult even at this late date to measure employer discrimination. That is, if the government has provided substandard education, for example, you know, for 12 years, whatever number of years someone's in school, uh, and then he goes into the labor market with this substandard education, uh, it's very hard then to compare him to someone who's gotten a better education in the same number of years to figure out how much of the differential is due to the quality of the education. Okay, so now he's talking about local government. Now, in America, which is unique versus the rest of the world, is that we we do things by local property tax. So if you live in a poor neighborhood, you're gonna get poor a poor education than if you were in a rich neighborhood. In most countries, like what they do, they do it on like a state level. So everyone in Maryland, all the kids in Maryland would be given the same amount of funding proportionate to the number of students that go to that school. Doesn't matter if you're in a poor area or, or in a rich area. So everyone gets the same level of education. Why, therefore, would America be different? Well, it has to deal with, again, racism. You know, uh, on one hand, it has to do with racism. On the other hand, it has to deal with um, classism. So racism, white people, don't want to pay for the education of black people initially and it just so happens that white people are richer than black people and and um rich people in general regardless of race don't want to pay for the education of poor people so what they did was they had it tied to the funding of schools tied to land and houses and and how much you know you actually you you own that's why that is so again, the any sort of discrimination that's happening in government is a complete reflection of the body of the people, regardless if if it's private industry or, or nonprofit. That's that's what you get when you have a representative democracy. That's a that's a, that's a tough problem. 
I think there's some indication of this in the fact that the older blacks earn a lower percentage of the income of whites of their own age than do the younger blacks, indicating in part the fact that the older blacks were educated in an era when the education was poor in, in, the, in the black schools uh, and also where the job opportunities were lower and therefore they had less experience. Oh, systemic race. Thank you. Thank you, Tom Sowell. So now I'm, I'm going to wait to see how he's going to round this corner. So, so that there would be a greater differential between, say, the 45-year-old black and the 45-year-old Jew than between the 20-year-old black and the 20-year-old yes, Jew. Yes, yes, uh, and, and, and with other mm -hmm. groups as well. With Puerto Ricans, for example, uh, Puerto Ricans around 18 to 24 earn about 3% higher than the national average, but Puerto Ricans around 50 earn substantially less. Mm -hmm. oh, what, what would be the legitimate and what would be the illegitimate deductions that an observer might make from the fact that America is, roughly speaking, 50% women, feminine, and there, yet there's only a single woman senator in Congress. What would be a legitimate, what would be an illegitimate deduction to make from that? Well, as I look at numbers paradox. from various places around the world, I don't find anything faintly resembling an even representation of people in any institution anywhere in the world, broken down by in any way. There's been a recent study of military forces around the world in which they can find no country in which the military force represents even approximately the ethnic composition of the society. This, this other talking point, like he has two famous talking points. One, well, when you tweak the information, like all the, the differences goes away and everyone's the same. And then the other, you, you can't find, it's like, well, yeah, that's true. Like if you go into any niche, right? If you look at chess or if you look at um, snooker or poker or um, was it equestrian? sports, whatever, things with horses. When you go into these niches, you're going to find like they're not going to be the same. They're not going to be totally equal to the population. And that has tons of different factors. So like, for example, why do, why isn't it the, the makeup of people who play hockey the same as the makeup of people who play hockey in Canada. It's like, well, Canada's colder, you're going to have more ice rings, so you're going to have a much greater diversity of people who are going to have experience um, being on the ice if, if you're from America. Uh, other than in the north-north where it gets really cold, not a lot of people have an opportunity to, you know, put on skates and ice skate. So you, it's going to be different. You're going to be, you should expect differences from that. So I feel like it's a cop-out because what we're, there's a difference between the military, of course, and representative democracy. Sometimes the poor groups are overrepresented, sometimes underrepresented. Uh, there are all kinds of factors there. Well, what's amazing to me is that this notion that people would be evenly represented except for these institutional policies, that notion has had such momentum behind it, a speck of evidence being asked or presented. And another thing that I just realized, he is now bringing up a, 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 a reason for why there's such a discrimination between nonprofit and, and for-profit sectors like one of the things that he just said was hey you know these people you know don't have as many it's not as diverse as the private the nonprofit 
is not as diverse as the profit. And that's because nonprofit don't have an incentive to bring in a, a bunch of people. Okay, well, why aren't there um, as many women in the nonprofit sectors or in government? Well, you know, you can't, any niche or area you look at, you're not gonna find an equal representative. And it's just like, this is what I'm talking about. This is, this is exactly what I'm talking about. He, this this talking point right here disproves the first talking point, which was, you know, oh, there's a profit motive attached to hiring people of different races. Well, what about genders? Oh, well, you know, you can't find equal representative uh, of of gender and ethnicity in every single sector. That's ridiculous. And you just and, and everyone's just like, yeah, that makes sense. It's just like, well, you can say the same thing about nonprofits and schools and in government. You could make that excuse. Well, what about, so let's, let's say you find 11% of a country uh, is Indian, but only 1% vote, but 50% is white and 40% vote. Do you draw any deductions from that disparity? I find that some people have different uh, views on the importance of voting. Mm -hmm. But I find that throughout the world. If you look at uh, Malaysia, for example, um, the Chinese are the large minority there, about a third or more of the Malaysian population. They're evenly represented in the colleges. The Chinese are outnumbered three to one by the Malays in liberal arts. They outnumber the Malays eight to one in science. If you look at uh, Asians in the United States who get PhDs, and here we're talking about a select group, uh, you find that they're outnumbered about three to one by Hispanics who get PhDs in history, but they outnumber the Hispanics ten to one in chemistry that nowhere do I find this even spread of people that you look for. And I think the reason is very simple, that human beings are not random events. So that we all have histories, and there are values that come out of <clears> those <throat> histories, and we have things that we want to do and things that we don't want to do. Well, but the, are these genetic implications or purely cultural implications? I would, think, I, would, I would think cultural. Uh, I know myself when uh, I was uh, struggling uh, in the late, late teens, looking for work, it never occurred to me to become a policeman. It never occurred to me to become a policeman. There are other people I'm sure who would have occurred to immediately. Uh, I never thought of that. That was not something that I, I did. I, and I knew there were black policemen. I uh, delivered groceries to one, so I knew that there were jobs there. It just was not something that I was led toward. Well, I think it's one thing for us all to accept individual inclinations, but to accept group uh, inclinations is, or should be a little bit more difficult, shouldn't it? For you to say, I, Tom Sowell, was not interested in being a policeman is very different from saying blacks on the whole are uninterested in being it's a tough, It's tougher to, to, uh, it's tougher to demonstrate in the case of a group, but what I'm saying is the contrary thesis, namely that all groups would be evenly represented everywhere uh, if, if allowed to follow their own bent without any, any institutional barriers. That is what I find amazing because even if you look at activities totally within their own control, what television programs to watch and so on, uh, there's a whole um, uh, sub-industry of uh, studying the demographic composition of television audiences uh, simply because they found that the people you know, who watch uh, NFL uh, Monday Night Football are not the same people who watch uh, uh, Meet the Press or, or, or McNeil Lehrer. Uh, and, the, and the advertisers want to know who are those people because they, they don't, they don't want to be selling uh, uh, lingerie to the people who are watching Monday Night Football, uh, and, they don't, yeah. and, and, they, and they, they don't want to waste their, their product dollar, their advertising dollar. And they find there are very substantial differences, even in things that are totally within the control of the individual. <laughs>
Now, th those, are those differences value-free on the whole or not value-free? I'm not sure what you mean by value-free. Well, uh, nobody can blame a man for being uninterested in wearing lingerie, mm -hmm. but you could blame a man, let us say, who would not permit uh, or would not invite a woman to share the experience of a football game on the grounds that it's, it's not appropriate. I suppose so. I never really thought of it. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure why it's, uh, there's a value problem involved at all if you're talking about what people choose to do themselves I'm leading as, back as distinguished from what they try to prevent other people from doing. See, I'm, I'm leading back now to the question of why is there a single woman in the Senate, although half of Americans are women, and I guess I'm asking you whether, there, whether, whether this is a transcription of implicit anti-feminine values in this society. Well, in a country where I think just over half the people are women, that if they wanted to fill the Senate with women, they could very well do it. Mm -hmm. Oh, God. It's gender roles. It's gen like I can why how come I can explain this phenomenon? It's it's gender roles. Like it, if you right if you are like he, he talked about being a policeman. Yeah, I know they're a black policeman. I delivered a black policeman. If most people you met you see are black policemen then you will think and you're you yourself are black you will think maybe to yourself okay i could become a policeman whether or not you're you're actually going to do that that's your individual choice but you recognize that it's the same thing with government if you see that the government is all men then it will it won't occur to you well i'm gonna run for office and you know uh what 40 years later yeah 40 years later we are in an era where being a politician isn't seen as a male profession in the 80s early 80s because this took place in 1981 that's what it was all down like local state uh federal level it was all men now you see women and more and more and more women are running because it's a possibility. You've seen the, the evidence. The, the gender role for that specific job has dissolved away. It's, it's a cultural explanation as to why there's one woman. And then also that with that culture, there are explanations of sexism, you know, um, how many men would feel comfortable with their wives running for office um you know be being basically the the first the first man or first gentleman of a town a state or the 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 country well it may very well be that they take on the prejudices of men that, all sorts of things are possible. It's also possible that there are other reasons why women don't choose to get into positions like politics because they have yeah. a set of demands which are very tough for most women to meet and, and at the same time do the other things that most women do, such as raise children and so on. That's what I was inviting to speculate on. Yes, I know, I know that from just from my own case, I've been invited to be involved in politics and, and electorally and otherwise. And given the values that I have, uh, it, it, there's just simply no way that those two things can go together.
that what I would have to give up in terms of my personal life uh, would just not be worth it to me. I suspect that that's probably true for a lot of women. When I did a study of academic women, uh, I found that uh, women who do follow academic careers, get their PhDs and so on, have much lower rates of marriage than either non-academic women or academic men, and much higher rates of divorce among the few who do get married. Apparently there must be a great deal of stress in that. And just from people that I know, I can see where there is a great deal of stress in trying to have two people following their career when one is expected around the home to provide all the housewifely services in addition to writing those articles and books. It gets to be a little much. So, again, remember, we're talking about the 80s. You know, this is 40 years ago. Like, there were a lot more gender roles, and women during this time were being expected to lean in to to be the independent woman, but at the same time, they have to manage, like, home life. And if you're getting your PhD, you're career-driven, um, there are all kinds of added stresses to it. So, and, but now... We live in a society where the the men of today, I would like to think, such as myself, are much more willing to um, take part or see, you know, taking what would traditionally be considered the woman's role of rearing the child, um, take a more active role. Now, there is still um, disparity between the, the genders when it comes to raising the child, women still primarily do most of the rearing, but it's it's a, a greater deal that men have taken on in this light. So you you would dismiss as a, as thoughtless any complaint against a society that had only uh, one woman in the Senate or only eleven percent blacks in Congress or only. Um, uh, 6% Jews or whatever. Or, or, or I wouldn't dismiss it. I would simply say, if there is evidence that you have, let us see that evidence. Mm -hmm. What I think is really tragic is that assertions have been made, not only without evidence being offered, but without anyone even asking for evidence. Mm -hmm. It's as if these are mm -hmm. self-evident truths that have been brought down from the mountainside. So, so the, 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 the thing to do is to look for non-invidious explanations. No, the thing to do is look for whatever <clears throat> seems to be the most reasonable explanation in the circumstance. And I'm saying that the people who have made the case the other way, or who, who've uh, acted as if they made the case, typically have not felt the necessity even to bring evidence. They say there's one woman in the Senate, therefore. Or they say that women make X percent of the income of men uh, without bothering to find out what percentage of those women are working <clears throat> part-time, what percentage of them are re-entering the labor force after 20 years of having children, etc rather than saying, let us compare now women who chose to stay in the labor force continuously since high school, on into their 30s, let's say, compared to men who did, and see how, how do they compare. And there, these great differences tend, tend to disappear. Yes, if you are a woman and you decide to lead what would be considered a, the, the gender role and the stereotypes of a typical male uh, career-driven individual, you're going to make similar money to a man however if i'm a like okay if i'm a man i am a man if if i decide to spend my whole life focused on my career i could be 50 years old and then i could still crank out i could i could have like if i live to 100 i could have potentially 50 kids and then die whereas a woman doesn't have that luxury and 
One of the reasons for that is because we live in a patriarchal society. What do I mean by that? What I mean is, is that there are institutions and policies and rules and laws that make it convenient for a man to be a man, but inconvenient for a woman to be a woman. Um, just recently, I, I don't even know if, if this is still a thing, but there was um, tax, like I guess like a luxury tax on women's um, hy hygienic products for women to you know have proper hygiene. It was an added tax to that, which is ridiculous. Um, uh, uh, Viagra is something that was covered by um, health insurance automatically, but you know, like contraception for women wasn't. Um, like uh, the, the list goes on and on. Universal child care, care. Um, like a UBI for women who want to stay home or maternity leave. America, other there's America and Papua New Guinea are the only two nations in the world that offers no guaranteed maternity leave for women. So America is very much a, a patriarchal society. And because of that, if you're a woman, woman, women, if you're a woman who is career-minded and you want to get ahead it, as he was saying earlier it's that value it's like okay which do i value more having a family being a mother or being successful and ideally a woman shouldn't have to make that choice a man can 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 have both a woman can't or it's easier for a man to to have both and a woman can't so what we should do to rectify that is to have universal childcare. We should have guaranteed um, maternity leave. I would say starting off bare minimum a year, increase uh, sick leave, give guaranteed sick leave. We don't have guaranteed sick leave, guaranteed sick leave. Um, increase uh, vacation time. Uh, increase funding for schools so that you there, there can be after school activities. I mean, there, there are all kinds of things that we can do as a, as a society to help women. Like um, in Japan, they have um, in all the stores, I don't know if it's all the stores, but I've heard, um, not heard, I've seen actually, where you go to like a supermarket and there's a place where you can just drop off your kids. You can just go and shop. Or if you go to a mall, there's a place where you just drop off your kids and it's free. It's a free service that's provided. You can go and do your own thing. You have supervisors there who make sure the kid is safe. And you go off and do your thing. You come back, pick up your kid, and then and then go. You know, there, there are all kinds of um, services and things that we can do to help women and by extension, helping the family. Uh, that we just don't do in this country. In some cases, the women make more. Well, but you, you seem substantially to have eliminated invidious explanations. For instance, when you write, how far have we come in removing discriminatory pay differences among individuals with the same qualifications and different racial or ethnic backgrounds? Among the young, younger generation, we have just about all the way. This is you. Yes. Now, this would suggest that you have satisfied yourself that there are no invidious uh, standards that inhibit minority ethnics 
from no, the, 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 you'll, you'll never reach the point where there, are no, where there are no NVIDIA standards because well, they're the always... They critically affect. Oh, I'm saying that if you're trying to explain pay differences, that's not an explanation that will stand up to a closer look at the data. Mm -hmm. And that's true not only in the United States, incidentally, it's also true in other parts of the world, that if you look at, again, go back to Chinese and Malaysia. In Malaysia, the Malays are the dominant force, not only numerically, but politically. They control the government and so on. In fact, they have anti-Chinese laws. Oh, they do. Yeah. yeah. So, so there's no question whether the Chinese are discriminating against the Malay Malaysia. I mean, all you have to do is read the, read the books, the statute books, and they tell you there's no, 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 no two ways about it. The fact of the matter is the Chinese make double the income of the average Malay. So the question is not whether people are discriminated against. The question is, how effective is that discrimination? And to what extent does it explain income differences? Because many of the groups that are above the average income in the United States and in other countries are groups that have demonstrably been discriminated against in various the Jews, ways. The Jews would be yeah. classic. The Japanese also. There are differences to discrimination. If you're, if you're someone who's Jewish, all you got to do, like if you if you have a stereotypical Jewish last name, is just change your name, or like if if it, your last name doesn't come up, I mean there there are a lot of people like you can pass. There are people who are who they're not like <laughs> the stereotypical uh, features like oh that person is X Y and Z, you know. So I, you know, comparing the discrimination of Jewish people, Japanese people, and and black people, and then making it seem like they're all the same is absurd. It is just absurd. Uh, and the Japanese make almost one-third higher income than the average American. So the question is not whether there's been this uh, interracial friction and so on. That's existed everywhere and down through history. The question is, how much can you explain the income differences that way? Well, uh, but you can explain it a lot, and that's the problem. Like this is this is what this is what I'm saying about Thomas Sowell. Like he comes off so intelligent, and he is. I'm not saying that he's he's stupid. It's just that how much can you explain it? It's like, well, I don't know, Thomas Sowell. You're here with your statistics and saying that there are discrepancies and a lot of it can be done culturally and you admit that there is um systemic uh like oppression or discrimination you admit that but then you don't go further you 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 get to the point where okay it is but how much and then you just walk away you just like eh, well, well we're done with that it's like well no come on let's look let's let's scythe through the the information, let's sift through it, scythe through. Um, black tax. Um, you can look it up on YouTube. Um, the, the author did a, a very um, simple study to look at the cost of why, um, even after slavery, Jim Crow, why that was a benefit, why um, the government facilitated Jim Crow and all these other um, redlining, all these other policies that discriminate against black and measured the actual wealth extracted from the black community that was then given to, you know, the rest of America. So look, look that up. Assuming then that uh, you can't explain them in terms of discrimination, then they have got to be explained in some other way. Mm. Now, what ways suggest themselves to you 
as, uh, un as subsidizing the principal residual differences? Oh, I would think uh, differences in skill and experience. Um, or may, may I give the, the figures you give just yes, as a background yes. here for the audience? If the average American makes 100, Dr. Sowell points out that Jews make 170, Irish 103, West Indians 94, blacks 62, and Indians 60. Now, did you factor into that age differentials or not? Um, no, those were gross figures. Those were gross figures. Yes. So, so therefore, they, they, would, they would come together a lot yes. more if you yes. took out the age. In fact, I, had, I did one uh, set of numbers some years ago of 30-year-old males only, and there the differentials began to shrink. shrink. Uh, as you look at the other things like that, the more things you hold constant, uh, the more these numbers tend to shrink. Okay, but how can we explain that? And I can explain that. Like, if, if during this time, like, the younger you are, everyone has this, a similar starting point, regardless of anything. If you're in your 30s or if you're in your 20s or whatever and you're starting off, you have very little skill or, or any of that. But over time, the, the disparity between those who started off, blacks, whites, will be different, will be greater in the long run. If you have, okay, for example, 30-year-old black guy, 30-year-old white person, and they both start working at the job, why over a period of time would there be a disparity between the black guy and the white guy? Well, typically speaking, the employer is going to be white, okay? And this is from, again, systemic racist um, reasons. And when I mean systemic racist reasons, I'm not saying that, like, the employer is white because he's white. No, it's because systemically over a period of time, because of laws that were racist, they have an echo effect that lasts. So, you know, where I, where I live, it's like mostly black, like 90% black. But if you go into any sort of franchise, Target, McDonald's or whatever, chances are the supervisor or the store manager is going to be white. That's just how it goes. So if the store manager is white, right, and the guy's black, and his colleague is white, same age, same skills and all of that, why then typically would the white person over time make more money? Is it because the white employer is racist? No, it is because, and I've seen this happen, it is because the black guy and white guy come from different socioeconomic backgrounds. There are certain cultural habits that the black guy is interested in that maybe the white guy isn't interested in. And the socioeconomic background of the employer who's, hap who's white and the young 30-year-old white guy who's also white are going to be similar. So they end up talking more. They end up, you know, hanging out, becoming buddy, buddy, buddy. And because of that, that white guy is more likely to become a supervisor, to get pr promotions up within the organization than the black guy. Um, a lot of companies, um, well, not, not a lot of companies, every company has like company culture. And when you are looking for a job, 
not only is the company looking for someone who's qualified for the job, but they're also looking for someone who's going to um, uphold the uphold or improve upon the current company culture. They're not looking for anyone to change the company culture. So if the employer tends to be conservative, then they are going to want to um, promote, um, give raises to people who are like-minded. Again, this is not a conscious thing. This isn't like, you know, oh, I'm going to only hire Republicans or something like that. And it's not, it's not like that. It's an implicit bias. You are going to want to promote and hire people that you like, people that you have an affinity for. You know, you want to hire people who are also very well skilled. And if you have both of those, someone who's very skilled or someone that you like, then you're going to promote that person over someone who is just skilled. I've seen it happen dozens of times. Unfortunately, after all this time, no one has bothered that I know of to try to eliminate differences of age, differences of education, and particularly qualitative differences in education, and try to see how much is left after you've done all of that. It begins to fall away pretty rapidly, though, with some of those things. Okay, but, but nevertheless, you, nevertheless, certain uh, significant differences remain. Major right? differences, and I, I don't want to be optimistic, because if you are poor for reason X rather than for reason Y, that is no enormous consolation. I mean, that, that will not impress the landlord or the people at the supermarket. Uh, the fact is they want to know how much money do you have. Uh, and you want to know how much money you're going to get, too. So that these are major differences, and things need to be done about them. Unfortunately, politics involves telling people what they want to hear. And what people want to hear is that a certain kind of villainy can explain almost all of it. Now, there's no such thing as a lack of villainy. See, and this is what I was saying earlier. When people think of systemic racism or bias or, or discrimination, they think that there is some nefarious person who's evil, who is, you know, I'm going to choose only white people. No, it's, it's implicit biases that people don't naturally think about that they have. Like we all grow up in this society where we, whether consciously or subconsciously, are fed narratives. Just like right now, like when people think of racism, they think of explicit racism. They don't think of implicit racism. When people think of systemic racism, so therefore they think like, okay, systemic. So it's the system that is racist. Okay, what is racist? Racist is explicit racism, which, you know, using the N-word, burning crosses, wearing the white hood, um, you know, using the N-word slur or something like that. No, it's not like that at all. You know, Martin Luther King said it himself, like the, the most um, segregated time in America is on the Sunday, Sunday morning. They're both Christians. Why, why are white Christians praying with other white Christians and black Christians praying with other black Christians? Why is, why is that happening? They're both American. They're both Christian. They both speak English. It doesn't make any sense. Are they doing it purposefully? Are black people racist against white people and white people are racist uh, against black people as far as these Christian groups? No, it's that's it, it just is. It's that it's implicit. They don't mean to do it. That's just how it is. In part driven by capitalism. The discrimination happens based on how much money you have. And because one side was 
favored and got a lot more um, means by which to build wealth and to keep their wealth and to have that wealth go down to the generations, they have certain privileges than another group that wasn't given any of those and was constantly having to start over from, from scratch. Among human beings, uh, anytime you take any large group of people, you have an almost inexhaustible source of sins. And if you want to look into all those sins, you can go on forever looking into them. The question is whether those sins explain the numbers you're talking about. Mm -hmm. All right, Let, let's, let's grant that they don't mm -hmm. and go on to say what is it that does account for them? Because we've eliminated genetic inclinations, mm -hmm. we've eliminated invidious uh, social factors, so we're left with what? For instance, region, where you come from, right? Region makes a big difference. Yeah, okay. Uh, Genetics and, and the fact that there's vindictive. So it must be from where you are. Yes, where you, where you come from does dictate a lot of where you're going to go. But there's still sy systemic racism, though. There's still that cultural aspect. Because remember, earlier they talked about it. They brought it up. It's like, well, if it's not genetic as far as IQ, then is it cultural? And he goes, yes, it's cultural. Well, let's get into it. What are some of the cultural factors as to why there are differences? They never do it. They're not going to go into it. People who come from the South tend to have lower incomes, whether okay. they're black or white. Okay, let's, uh, say, let's say then history. we're talking about people in the same region. There would still be a, there would still be a difference. Uh, history would be one, one big one. History, uh, by what do you mean by oh, history? All right. The history Jews of the race or the history of the personal history of when they got here or what? The history of the group in the United States. Mm -hmm. That, for example, the Jews who came here came here with all sorts of urban skills. They were clothing industries, uh, garment work. Yes, that sort of thing. Uh, the Germans came here with all sorts of skill in beer making, piano making, machinery kinds of things. Uh, blacks, of course, emerging from slavery had enormous uh, disadvantages, even as compared to people emerging from slavery in other parts of the Western Hemisphere. Because, for one thing, in the United States, uh, blacks were not allowed to have any responsibility under slavery. That the, 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 one of the key ways of holding blacks in slavery at low cost was to keep the people dependent as much as possible. Now, people tried to do that in other parts of the Western Hemisphere. It wasn't as possible, say, in the West Indies, because there weren't enough whites, for example, in the West Indies to matter. So if blacks were going to be fed in the West Indies, they had to be fed by growing their own food. So interesting to listen to Tom Sewell talk about and describe systemic racism. I'm wondering where he's going with this because so far he's on point. I'm wondering where he's going with this. Like Angolan and, uh, uh, and um, like the Portuguese colonies compared to say South Africa. Yes. And so therefore the blacks say in the West Indies had all sorts of experience growing their own food, selling the surplus in the market and in fact being responsible for budgeting what they, what they had. Blacks in the United States were deliberately kept from having that. Dependence was seen as the key to, to, to holding the slaves down. It's ironic that that same principle comes up in the welfare state you know, 100 years later. Well, I was going to ask you uh, uh, that. Uh, you've anticipated me. Then he just skips. He just goes from keeping black people dependent and then just jumps to welfare state. Ah. <sighs> He just skips a hundred years. He just, God damn it. Damn it. He was doing so well. It was just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then a hundred years later, we got the welfare. So they're dependent on welfare. It's just like, well, why? What happened a hundred years? What are you talking about? Uh, 
to what extent do you do you find that then that the welfare state is trying to preserve uh, an ethos which precisely I understand you to say we need to liberate ourselves from yes that politics really involves getting people to vote for you and they get and people vote for you when they think that, that they can depend on you when they are dependent on you to the extent that people become self-reliant and can feel they're perfectly capable of taking care of themselves to that extent do you lose your hold on their vote uh, that's kind of a harsh uh, generality isn't it because a lot of people who really are philanthropically minded are in favor of the kind of thing that is generally understood as as a charitable intercession, isn't it? Yes, there are people who are professional politicians who simply look at the bottom line of yeah. where the votes go. There are other people who sincerely believe that if they will hand out things here and there, that this will in fact benefit people. Again, looking at... Uh, Your point is it doesn't. It doesn't. I, I, haven't been able to find, I haven't been able to find a single country in the world where the policies that are being advocated for blacks in the United States have lifted any people out of poverty. I've seen many examples around the world of people who began in poverty and ended in affluence. Not one of them has followed any pattern at all like what is being advocated for blacks in the United States. I, I, I want to make this very clear. Um, again, this, hap this is in 1981. This is literally, redlining is happening right now. Let's, let's look this up. Yeah. Like, on the books. And by the way, redlining is literally still happening. Here we go. In May 2015, the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development announced that the Associated Bank had agreed to $200 million settlement over redlining in Chicago and Milwaukee. The three-year HUD HUD observation led to a complaint that the bank purposefully rejected mortgage applicants from black and latino applicants the final settle settlement ab to open branches in non-white neighborhoods just like hsbc this 2015 so what he's talking about right now is during 1981 so uh, yeah of course of course like the prescriptions that are for black people aren't going to help them because you it's like i have ebola and you're giving me tylenol of course you're not you're not going to see an improvement yes it's going to help with maybe some pain or whatever but what i need you're not giving me there are a lot of damages that's happening to the black community systemically that welfare isn't solving so sitting here saying well it's all because of welfare that's ridiculous you're you're not looking at all the damages like you if there are 10 things that bad if there are nine bad things happening to the black community and and the 10th thing you know is welfare which is a good thing and the rest are, are bad then you're gonna just look at welfare and go like well that's the problem it's like no that's not the problem you know well if, if you want black people <clears throat> to be able to do well stop with the redlining stop with the systemic systemic uh discrimination um uh, uh, uh some form of reparations in the form of um, social policies that give black people the means by which they can improve themselves, okay? Um, for everyone, not just the black community, um, 
healthcare, free college tuition, and um, affordable housing. And particularly, this is what I'm saying, like when we talk about these things like, you know, tuition and, and affordable housing, we it, they, they should be particularly aimed at the black community um, so that they can start to gain wealth. That's because like one of the main ways any citizen in a society is able to accumulate wealth is, is through their home. And right now, black people are being uh, systemically discriminated against while this is recording. Uh, many groups have remained in poverty for a very long time trying to follow those patterns. These sort of permanent indigent classes. That's right. Within the blacks, there, there's a very diverse movement, though. On the one hand, you have blacks who are getting more education, who are going to college and so on. Uh, their incomes are rising, not only absolutely, but relative to that of whites of the same description. Uh, it's those blacks who have not had, say, nine years of schooling, uh, who have not had um, six years of experience in the job market. Their incomes are declining relative to the incomes of black, uh, incomes of whites, if over the very same span of time. So it can't be a matter of the business cycle or something like that. It's that those blacks who have the advantages relative to others have now still more advantages. Ah. Those who had the ah, that, see. See, like, I, I like this. So he is also describing right now capitalism. This is, this is one of the problems with, with capitalism. The problem is, is that if you are successful, capitalism makes it, rewards you for it, which is, which is a good thing. That's that whole meritocracy um, shtick. But when you become successful, your chances of becoming more successful increases. So it feeds into itself. If you fail, if you have a failure, if you have a setback, you are now at a higher chance of having more setbacks. So there is this pull from the middle class. There's a pull of people becoming more successful, which is fewer and fewer and fewer, because they, every time there's a cycle of succession, they have to then compete with those who succeeded and then it, it slowly comes to a point and then those who fail slowly are pushed down okay that's how that works and he's describing it right here the very difficult poverty to deal with that is becoming more difficult a higher percentage of all black income is going to the top 20 percent of blacks over time well is it your is do i understand you to say that the government has exacerbated the plight of these Poor blacks? Yes. How? A number of ways. One, they've made it difficult to get jobs, to get started in the job market. Minimum wage law would be one of those things, but only one. Uh, the terrible schooling would be uh, a major factor. So what he's saying here is that black people can't start a business because black people are so poor, they can't afford to hire people at a living wage. It's literally what he said. And it's the government's fault for that. Isn't that capitalism's fault? How come if you're poor and you want to start a business, how come the business model itself cannot ensure that you're not, because the whole idea is about prosperity, right? So if I start a business, I make, I'm starting to make a living, starting to make money, but wouldn't a good business be able to also pass on that prosperity to other people 
we're talking about the 80s, you know? So, so let me go back, because he said another He said, for one, was um, um, the minimum wage. So, because business um, business people, small businesses, have to pay their employees a living wage, that's one of the reasons why um, black people can't get ahead. Of these poor blacks? Yes. How? A number of ways. One, they've made it difficult to get jobs, to get started in the job market. Minimum wage law would be one of those things, but only one. Uh, the terrible schooling would be uh, a major factor. That if you're trying to turn out kids who have... I agree. However, I think that very few conservatives would then want to adopt the model that most other countries have, which is to have people collect the property taxes, but instead of funding schools based on how close they are to rich people or poor people, funding schools equally at the proportion of the students. So if a school has 100 students, and let's just say the funding that they have is for $1,000 per student, then that school will get $1,000. Good example, a good way. But I, I don't think that conservatives would, would like that. Rich people don't want to pay for poor people. 40% are functionally illiterate upon graduation from high school, then you're going to have very serious problems in the job market. And the government is responsible for that? The government runs the, the schools. schools. Yes. State, and, state as well as federal. Uh, they're doing many things to make it much tougher for the person at the bottom to get started. Uh, and they're also making it uh, less necessary to get started by having various subsidy programs, food stamps, welfare, and so on. No, those, the, the food stamps and all that doesn't hold back people. But the gov why does the government do that? Why does the government make it difficult for poor people to get ahead? It's because it, it's, that's a good thing. Because if, if poor people were able to get ahead, then that would make it more difficult for rich people to exploit them. And the government works for capitalists. The government works for rich people. So the government makes it difficult for poor people to come up because if, if it's what's happening right now with colleges, right? All what, what, what is the, the talking point now in 2020 amongst conservatives? Don't go to college because college is a waste of a degree. Get, go get a vocation. But during this time in the 1980s, every, all the conservatives were pushing people to go to college. Like, oh, if you, if you want me to pay you a decent wage, then go get a degree. And that's what everyone did. Everyone listened to the conservatives and went and got a degree. And now that's what happens. When everyone is able to, to get something, it waters down the, the greatness of it. So now it's not as worth, as worth it as it was before. So now it's like, well, now a, lot of, a bunch of people who have degrees are now having to go ahead and relearn other things, okay? which uh, uh, reduce the difference between working and not working. So that the, the general tendency of what they're doing is to make it harder to rise. But of course, if you're lucky enough to have started to rise before these programs began, then you're in great shape. When I before welfare and before food stamps, if you were doing better, you're in great shape. No, no, that's, I mean, regardless, you want to improve. And if you were doing better before these programs, that's, that's great. I mean, obviously, 
but you're, he's making it seem as though, but and he and he never corrects. Let me see. I'm going to see if Buckley challenges him to explain why would giving poor people essentially money hurt them. You you point out in your book that one of the popular misconceptions is that uh, the blacks, black families, were headed by women as the result of uh, as the result of uh, the. Uh, of sundering families during the slave-owning uh, mm. era. You say that's, that's incorrect, that traditionally there was a mother and a father in situ uh, where, where black families were concerned. Then you, you make the, the following statement. The current large and rising numbers of female-headed families among blacks is a modern phenomenon stemming from the era of the welfare state when the government began to subsidize, subsidize desertion and teenage pregnancy. Yes. In what way is the government subsidizing teenage pregnancy? Oh, the, the AFDC. Uh, you're concluding that there would be less of that pregnancy if there were less of that program? I'm saying that historically there was a lot less of it before there was such, were such programs mm -hmm. in general. Uh, I'm citing there, for example, a study by Herbert Gutman, which took uh, more than a decade, I believe. It's really interesting listening to him talk about, because like black conservatives today, because this is 40 years ago, so black conservatives today are like, oh no, like the government, Planned Parenthood is killing babies, black babies, and now it's like here the the government is encouraging women to have babies. Again, it's what's striking to me is how long people repeated the statement that the female-headed black family was a legacy of slavery mm -hmm. without ever bringing forth a single piece of evidence. Gutman spent 20, uh, more than 10 years looking into this, came up with exactly the opposite conclusion, that it was rare, particularly for teenage black women, to have uh, children with no man uh, in, the, in the house uh, through the period that he covered, which is up to 1925, that uh, those black women who were, had no husband typically were either widows or, 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 or deserted or what have you. They were not teenage girls in most cases. I think in one, one period, 3% uh, of the black families were headed by teenage girls. And that figure is now over 50%. I don't know what the teenage girl percentage is, but it's oh, an teenage, awful yeah, lot, yeah, it's an yeah, awful yeah. lot higher than that. Yeah. Uh, well, Doctor, let's hear. They just don't talk about it. They just don't, they just walk off. It's just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Why, why is it happening? It's because the government started giving them money. From uh, our examiner, we have with us, this is Harriet uh, Pilpel, who's well known to this, uh, viewers of this program. This is Pill Pell is a, an attorney with Greenbaum, Wolf, and Ernst, a graduate of Vassar and of the Columbia Law School, and very active in a number of liberal and feminist uh, movements, Mrs. Pilpel. I would like to ask both of you, if I may, the same question. Uh, both of you seem agreed that in the 1950s, Harvard and Yale excluded blacks and Jews and were. 30s, 30s. 30s? Yeah. Excluded blacks and Jews. And in fact, in another exactly. program, Bill, you exactly. said that you think it's the other way today, that Harvard and Yale discriminate against Anglo-Saxons. Well, to the extent that they believe in affirmative action, they would necessarily have to discriminate I would like to know what... No, this affirmative action... Affirmative action doesn't mean that you discriminate against white people. And back, they, they compared it to apartheid. 
and that a lot of businesses had a quota for hiring white people. And there you can see that white people in South Africa held all the power, but represented 9% of the population. And in America, the people who have the power are the white people and people who don't have power are the black people. And so if, for example, you have a thousand, let's just say you have a thousand seats, right? And you, you let them hire as, as whatever they want. They are, well, I mean, today, affirmative action has been so watered down. It's just basically like, just keep an eye out for making sure that your place is diverse. Just make sure your place is diverse. That's what affirmative action is now. There's no quota. And there are systemic affirmative action for white people, such as legacies. So colleges have a thing where if your father went to that school, then upon you applying for that school you get additional like points added to your application because you are a legacy okay so i went to college so if my children went to the exact same college i went to then it's much easier for them to go to that same college and because of that and there's more there's so many different like policies that are put into place that amount to basically white affirmative action um that if you're black chances are it's going to be your first time going to that college so that is a count against you so affirmative action was a way of trying to correct that trying to yeah trying to correct that so you think changed this attitude from discrimination against blacks and Jews to, in Bill's opinion anyway, the opposite extreme. May, may I? Uh, yes. I don't see it as a change of attitude. I see it as a change of who, who, whose ox is gored. And the change is simply a political change in the larger society. It's, it's, it's cheaper for nonprofit organizations to discriminate, no matter who they discriminate against. Therefore, you would expect them to be in the forefront of discrimination, whether it is direct discrimination or reverse discrimination. Okay, I see what he's saying. So he's he's taking affirmative action as a form of discrimination because it's cheaper because it's nonprofit. Like I it's not it's not discrimination. Because there then let me explain. There are power dynamics at work. There are power dynamics at work. Who has the power in the scenario when they were comparing South Africa and America, white people. Why, are there, why is there a white quota in South Africa? Because white people make up 9% of the population. If you look at America, white people make up at this time like 70, 75% of the population. So any positions anywhere are going to be predominantly white. And there are all kinds of incentives put into place naturally, systemically, which encourages the fact that those areas are going to be dominated by white people. So in order for people of color, in this case, black people, to get their foot in the door, there has to be some kind of 
for lack of a better word, a quota. But today, when we're talking about affirmative action, it's not a it's not a um, quota. It's just like, hey, just make sure you you got diversity. I feel like he's conflating things. He's 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 conflating the two. Discrimination, and that's largely what you find. Well, you're saying that it was to their advantage to discriminate against blacks and Jews before, no, and now no, it's it was never way. it was never it was never to their advantage to do so, except insofar as they simply had prejudices which they were able to indulge. I'm saying that whatever they do, discrimination costs them a lot less than it costs someone in a competitive industry. Highly competitive industries, for example, sports and entertainment, have typically been much more open than much more closed-in kinds of uh, non-competitive things like public utilities and non-profit organizations, foundations, universities, hospitals, and so on. What would you do to help those blacks who are still in a very low economic condition in terms of education, for example, how there, there are, as you said, many blacks today who are still being given totally inadequate education, yes. cannot be expected to get very far for that reason. What would be your remedy for that? I know. Oh, I would, oh, that, that's uh, very easy. I would allow their parents to have a choice of where to send them to school, whether that choice is called. Oh, the old school voucher system. Um, there is what happens when um, when that happens, the rich people of that community are able to send their kids to private schools and then they get vouchers for it. So like they don't pay taxes to go to public schools. It goes instead to the private schools. And what that does is it siphons off funding from the public school, so the public school has even worse um, education uh, and and performs even worse. And then afterwards, um, that school has to eventually shut down because it just doesn't have the funding to hire all the teachers. And so now these communities are only stuck with these for-profit, like uh, you know, voucher schools. Um, Vice talked about this. Uh, do, 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 do. Yeah, they, they, they talk charter schools. They, they talked about it and they talked about and like there's so many articles and so many. Um, see, learning pause could widen the, the educational gap, because when you have that, it, it just creates. It's worse for the community. A voucher scheme, open enrollment, tuition tax credit, any kind of scheme of that sort that would put that power in the hands of their parents mainly because that would mean that the schools would have to be responsive to them. As it is now, the school is a monopoly. They need not be responsive. I have relatives right here in New York uh, whom I've had to intervene for because the schools would not even treat them decently, much less give them access to the information they want. Yeah, okay, well that's a form of um, explicit, in this case, uh, discrimination. Um, also, when they talk about monopoly, you have a school board. That's what I'm saying. But the problem is, and here this is, goes back to what I was saying before, if you are poor or struggling in the middle class, you don't have time to go to PTA meetings. You don't have time to look at who's on the school boards to figure out, you know, how the schools are run. So when they, when he talks about the schools have a monopoly, they do in the sense that um, 
you know, public school is public school. There's, I mean, unless there's a private school around, um, there's not really a competition. But the thing is, is that it's a, it's a funding issue. Number one, it's a funding issue because schools that are poor aren't able to get the, um, S skilled e equipment, facilities, teachers, and all of that. Number one. Number two, um, is it, it, it goes back to, um, it pays to be involved. If you're a stay at home mom and you're, and your husband makes enough for the both of you and you're in, in a, you know, white picket fence, that sort of community, you're going to get better education. You can be more involved in your children's lives than if you're like a struggling parent in New York. And if you're educated, such as Thomas Sowell, you will be able to have the, the knowledge of what rights you have, what level levers to pull, then you're poor on, uh, now I want to say undereducated or, or poorly educated relatives for lack of a better word. They were entitled to under the law. If you put it in the hands of the parents, and the parents are themselves uneducated mm -hmm. and not really aware of what the various potentials are, what makes you think that they would decide more intelligently than the present system? I think, again, history. Uh, blacks, as blacks emerged from slavery, oh, a minute percentage could read or write, and yet in half a century, over half the black population was literate. Uh, an economic historian has called that one of the most remarkable things. In half a century, so 50 years. So yeah, that's because all the kids that were eligible or of where they can go to school, they learned. And all the people that couldn't learn, who were too old or whatever, they died because of old age, I mean, 50 years. So if, if I'm 30, 50 years old, when... I become emancipated. I'm now a, a free man. In 50 years, I'm going to be dead. In history, if you look back to the era prior to the Civil War, when there were free blacks, about uh, half a million in the United States, they not only were not allowed in the public schools, they were in some states forbidden even to send their children to private schools and had to do so clandestinely. And yet the census of 1850 showed that most free blacks could read and write. So I don't think that uh, the fact that people have little education means that they are in any way uh, uh, poorer judges than distant bureaucrats who have their own access to grind and run the public school system. He just said in New York, he just used his own relatives as an example of people who were being taken advantage of by the system and um, as esteemed and as, as educated as Thomas Sowell is, he was able to find them justice because systemically the education system were just like, you know, whatever. They just discounted them and they didn't have the wherewithal or the knowledge to be able to bypass that and go, wait a minute, hold on. I know my rights, X, Y, and Z. This is what I'm asking you for. And if you don't, I know exactly who to go to, to put your feet to the fire. He just said that like a, 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 it's interesting, like because Thomas Sowell is always like held to this high degree of scholarliness within the conservative community. And then like when you really listen to him, you're just like, hey, but you just said, wait a minute. 
And being able to read doesn't mean that you're going to be able to navigate the bureaucracy or <clears throat> um, certain discrimination, implicit discrimination that's going to come your way. Thomas Sowell is an exception. He's incredibly smart, incredibly educated. So he's able to bypass all of that easily. He helped his, his relatives with that. But you yourself said that you thought one of the reasons why blacks were still in an underprivileged position, those who still are, was because they had not been given a proper education. Yes. And we are now talking about people who had not been given a proper education, making decisions for their children as to what is a proper education. And you're saying that they, if that was put up to them, mm -hmm. they would make a wiser choice than the present efforts to integrate the let schools. Me, let, let me uh, say that if they would not make a very different choice, it would be hard to understand the hysterical opposition of teachers unions to giving them that, that opportunity. Well, I have no comment on that, but I would like to know. Teachers how unions? What? Educational opportunities. Oh, uh, I, I, I believe with Dr. Soul that uh, the voucher system uh, obviously encourages parents to use the same kind of selectivity that's available to, to parents who have enough money to send their children to private schools. And that to to give the to give a versatility of choice, a flexibility of choice to parents of poor children, uh, the same versatility that is given to parents of wealthier children, uh, is obviously desirable. And you think that this is forty years ago? Like, oh no, just give give them money, give them vouchers, so that their funds aren't going to the local schools, so that they can have the same opportunities as rich kids. It's like that's not on paper. Or in theory, that sounds right, but in practice, poor parents, even with the voucher, because remember, the voucher is, is basically the equivalent of the property that they have. So the voucher system is going to benefit wealthier people because they have more expensive properties and live in more expensive areas than it is poor people. It is in the benefit of poor people to not get a voucher and to sit, continue sending their kids to public schools, but get more public funding for that school because that school is underfunded. And also when people say like, oh no, like the kids are like the most, American kids are the most, um, like we spend the most on, on education. That's the average, the average. Yes, on, on average, we spend the most per child, yes. But the money isn't divided evenly. It's, it's like this. Poor people get almost not enough, not almost not enough, definitely not enough. And rich people, you know, tons of like, oh, you get iPads and all. They, they never have to do fundraisers, you know? Their ability to make the decision is equal. No, no, but I think, I think it, it, it may be equal, maybe less equal, maybe more equal. I think that the phenomenon of the of poor and, and, and uneducated uh, uh, parent who seeks for his, his or her children what he himself has never achieved for himself is, is much, much more commonplace. Oh, God, yeah. Th than, uh, than, the, than the kind of sated, uh, self-satisfied parent who who typically neglects the education of his child. I, I think you'd have uh, wait, wait. who actually finished college, including myself, if they had- Sorry, go back. Oh, God, yeah. Th then, uh, then the, then the uh, is obviously desirable. And you think that their ability to make the decision is equal? No, no, but I think, 
I think it, it, it may be equal, maybe less equal, maybe more equal. I think that the phenomenon of the of poor and, and, and uneducated uh, of parent who seeks for his, his or her children what he himself has never achieved for himself is, is much, much more commonplace oh, God, yeah. than, than, uh, than, the, than the kind of sated, uh, self-satisfied parent who, who typically neglects the education of his child. No, no, I, what? No, every parent, regardless of, of income, would want the best for their, their children. Like, oh, just because you're rich and wealthy. Now, if you're rich and wealthy, you won't worry as much about the education that your child is getting because you are confident that your child is getting the best education. If you're poor, you are concerned about that because the odds of your child getting a poor education or a bad education is much higher. And during that time in the 80s, again, remember what I was saying? The conservative line of, of thinking is, is that education is the, the way towards being prosperous. You know, in the very beginning of this program, they talked about West Indians and Asians becoming lawyers and doctors. So in the 80s, on through the 90s and 2000s, the line of thinking was, if you want to get ahead, if you want to get uh, earn a good living, go to college, get a good education, because that that's the equalizer. I, I think you'd have uh, very few blacks who finished college, including myself, if they had to have college-educated parents to send them there. Uh, I, you know, that uh, there was no one in my family that went to college before me, and I, and among the blacks that I know of my generation, I would say that's the rule rather than the sure. exception. My son, the doctor syndrome. Absolutely. Well, uh, I think that in insofar as your own experience is concerned, you are clearly an exceptional person, and it is someone exactly. reminiscent of what the Minister for Women's Affairs said in France when she was asked whether there was going to continue to be a Ministry of Women's Affairs now that women had achieved such great strides forward. Her answer was, as long as the average woman does not have the same opportunities as the average man, we need to have a government office which will try to get them some sort of equal opportunity. But it's precisely yes. the government which is denying it in this case. It's the government which has been running these schools from which the kids graduate. Again, local governments, local, local governments. And why are local governments run the way they are? It's because rich people, and in some cases, you know, if we go back to um, the emancipation of slaves in the South, white people did not want their money, their ta the money the, from the taxes that are collected from their property to go to those schools. This is what I'm saying, and and this is unique. This, if you go to Canada, you go to many different countries in Europe. You go even in China. It doesn't matter where you are in the city; everyone gets the same level of um, funding. Semi-literate, and for for years, black parents have been sending their kids—not just me, but a whole generation of blacks—to college high school, whatever. If you look at the history of black education in the United States, that has been largely, uh, at the beginning, uh, an effort by the blacks themselves. It was 1916 
before there were as many blacks attending public high school as were attending private high schools. So there's a very long history of blacks trying to get their kids educated. I might say from my experience, again, not my own story, but at black colleges, the parents who work nights and drive, fathers drive cabs and mothers who scrub floors to see that their kid gets an education. If there weren't such people, you wouldn't see half as many blacks with, with uh, college degrees today. And they're beating down the doors of Catholic parochial schools, That's even non-Catholic blacks, to get in there. Yes. What percentage would you say of the total number of blacks were in private schools or beating down the doors of parochial schools? Would it not be a considerably less than half percentage? That's right, because they don't have the money. And you, you could have made exactly the same argument against the GI Bill, that why should you have a GI Bill for people to go to college when, the rich are on, when only the rich go to college? Well, the reason the rich did, were the only ones going to college at that time was because there was no GI Bill. The whole point of this is to put this choice within their hands. It is hard for me to understand. I like how you just slipped in the GI Bill. Government, government allowing people to go to college but it's government's problem as, as to why black people aren't successful. What harm is going to be done by allowing parents to have a choice as compared to having self-interested bureaucrats have a monopoly? Well, I think that your notion of parents having a choice overlooks the tremendous degree of family disorientation which exists in all communities, including the black community. Single mother families, a single mother has the same incentive to send her kid to the best school she can get him into as any other parent. There are, of course, many children, particularly of high school age, who are totally disassociated from their parents. That's true. I think, I think that would be a considerably less than half, too, to use your phrase. Um, I, I think it's funny that when the government gives predominantly white people things, like the GIB bill, which is the ability to go to college, um, because before, was, yeah, he was right. Only only rich people went to college, but then GI Bill, the government paid for that. It's not considered to hurt rich white people. And another thing, welfare is predominantly, like the food stamps and all that, is predominantly used by white people. But in the 80s, this narrative of the, what is it, the welfare queen and all of that was pushed towards being predominantly a black thing and looking at the degradation of the black community, which was from other reasons, they pointed to welfare as being one of those reasons and, and as an excuse to cut back on welfare. Uh, I would like to, for a moment, ask you some questions about the economics of job getting in terms of the blacks versus the whites. The statistics I was able to pull together indicate that at the present time, white males make $17,427 on an average basis for the year. Black males make $12,738. White females make $10,244. Black females make $9,476. It is clear from these figures, as indeed I think it's clear to most of us from what we see, that there is a discrimination against blacks and against women in our present system. Since not all blacks will be superior, how would you try to even that out so that there would be some equality of job opportunities? I'm sorry you missed the earlier part of the program when I pointed out that uh, where you find uh, people not represented evenly, that does not show the institutional effect because almost nowhere in human affairs do you find people evenly represented. Well, if you, if you 
he just he just talked about how like the discrimination between like government and private sector how the government discriminates more and then he then he he's pulling it out again he's pulling out well you're not you're not going to find even representation and then he it's weird because like in the same program like he he describes systemic discrimination he describes it and then he just skips and then goes to today and it's just like oh you know it's discrimination that's it's weird you compare comparable people with respect to age with respect to education etc you get a totally different picture both with respect to blacks and women now the figures that i saw for example show uh more recently that if you take black families where the husband and wife are both college educated and compare them to white families where the husband and wife are both college educated the black family is now earning two thousand dollars a year more the problem is not the problem is okay remember what he said two thousand dollars more i don't because today if you look at those uh if you look at those statistics today then basically uh white families still make more money like if you have two college educated adults they are still going to uh, and, and they're black. They're going to make less money than their white counterparts. Still. Is that very few blacks fall in that category. That when you compare category for category, then we're talking about getting people a decent education. I'm saying that you cannot say that numbers collected at the employer's place of business reflect simply the employer's policies. Those, num those numbers reflect underlying conditions in the whole society. Just as numbers like Yes. Yes, no one's saying that the numbers of the employer represents the, the employer's policy, but we're talking about the numbers represent, yes, <laughs> yes, that's, that's, yes, yes. The hospital do not show you that the people are sick because they're in the hospital. No, I, I would agree with that, but you would also have to agree that generally speaking, women are paid less, for example, for the same jobs as men. No, I would not. I would not agree with that. If you're talking about women, with the same number of years of experience, with the same continuous service, etc., etc., then when I look at that, I don't find that disparity. I find, for example, in many cases, the women are making more, depending on. 2009, there was uh, an expansion to the Equal Pay Act of 1963 um, under the Obama administration because a woman actually won a case because she had been getting paid less than her male counterparts and she was able to show that and the expansion to this basically made it so because prior to 2009 the expansion of um that act prior to that if once you found out that you are being discriminated against as far as pay and you go file your claim and you win you only get that adjustment from when you discovered it, not from the beginning of your employment. So this this happened uh, roughly 28 years after he's sitting here saying, oh, you know, this doesn't happen. It happens. Um, now to the next thing, again, he is talking about um, if a woman lived her life like a man, like, career goals putting uh having children and all that aside that's indicative 
of a patriarchal society. She has to have her lifestyle be that of a man for as career choices in her personal life in order to have the same equality, I guess, or the same income of that as a man. And what we should do is implement policies that enable not just career-minded women, but all women to be able to reach the same potential as their male counterparts. How you break the data down. The difference with women is between, unmar- is between married women and everybody else. That's the real difference. Well, even as to single women, the Census Bureau statistics, the most recent ones I could find, 1978, say that single men are earning $11,100 and single women are earning $9,300. Yes, I, lo- I love the word single that is used. When I did my study, I didn't use single, I used never married. You see, a woman who is single at age 40, having spent 10 or 20 years raising children, is really not quite the same as a man at age 40 who's been working continuously for 20 years. And the differential she cited is not that great, so it could easily be accounted for by, by, by the Yes, because raised. when I break them down the other way, I, I did this for the academic world, and there I found the uh, women who are never married, which is the term the way I, I take it, uh, there they were earning more than the men. And similarly, when the government did data some years ago on women who had been working continuously since high school into, the thir- into their, their 30s, uh, there you found that they were making slightly more than men of the same description. So the difference is between married women and everybody else. And married men get an extra bonus because their wives take care of many things that enable them to put more time into their careers. I'm sure you're aware of the fact that there are approximately 15% of all homes in which there is only one wage earner. So that when you talk about women being able to take care of things for their married mate wage earner, the fact is that in the overwhelming majority of American homes, the women also work. And therefore, I don't think your explanation that women have other responsibilities and that that's why they are... Work can mean part-time work or full-time work. Women do not work full-time to the same extent that men. Part-time workers make less than full-time. May I ask a question about unemployment? Uh, The latest figures I saw indicated that of black youth, something like 46% of those who wanted jobs were unable to get jobs. I really would like this time to ask both of you to respond to what would you do in that situation? If you would assume for a moment that these are people who do want jobs and are unable to find work. I would, first of all, uh, repeal the minimum wage law because if you go back to, say, 1950, 1948, 49, 50, you find that at that time the unemployment rate among black teenagers was a fraction of what it is today. And there certainly wasn't any less racism then than there is today. Uh, what was different was that at that time, the minimum wage law was a decade old. It was a decade of inflation, and the law hadn't been changed. So for all practical purposes, it didn't exist. Well, don't you think and that was also, be- also a decade of expansion, in which there were a lot of jobs, whereas today our economy is in a recession, if and look, there are not that many jobs If you look available. at the most prosperous years of the 60s and 70s, you don't find black teenage unemployment as low as it was in the recession year of 1949. Well, I don't know what the job situation was then, but it's only recently that we have I do. I was a black teenager in 1949. Did you get a job? It was a recession year, and after a considerable looking, I found a job. But the point is, the kid who was living where I lived then, who's living there now, he has a hell of a lot harder time finding that job because there are so many good people who have tried to do good for him and priced him right out of the market. Well, there you go. So it's not a matter of minimum wage. It's the increase of um, 
requirements. Like today in 2020, you need a degree to push a fucking mop. So if you had a choice between someone who had, who is college educated and someone who isn't college educated, you're going to go with the college educated person. Like you, in, in like uh, getting rid of the minimum wage, isn't going to solve that. It's just going to allow employers to pay even less, but they're still going to have high requirements. Situation as it presently exists, what would you do for that 46 If the situation is going to remain as it presently exists, the results will remain no, as I'm it presently exists. No, I'm saying now, today, what would you do to help this 46%? I would repeal those things, which but is But that isn't going to help these 46%, is it? Nothing. If, if, Something uh, has do, to you be want, do, do you want to change it or you want to leave it the same? If you want to leave it the right. same, everything will continue the same. If you want to change it, it will change. See, this is, what he said, and this is what she said. She's like, well, okay, if we did that, would it help? And he can't answer the question. He can't. Because the thing is that, yeah, it won't help. I literally just, def I debunked this right now. I just said, look, if you allow employers to pay even less than, like right now on Twitter, there's a famous um, job application where um, it's an entry level. They want someone with a master's degree and they're paying $15 an hour. Now, granted, that's um, an anecdotal but it proves my point is that if you were to get rid of the minimum wage, the only thing that it will do is will incentivize employers to charge even less. If the minimum wage were $15 an hour, then employers would be have the pressure to increase the amount that they pay because the thing is, is that if I can get paid $15 an hour to be a dishwasher, why am I going to accept a job that requires a master's degree that pays $15 an hour? And again, this has nothing to do with unemployment. This isn't going to affect unemployment at all. The thing that affects job employment is the availability of jobs. And in my opinion, a way to increase jobs is in the public sector. What do I mean by that? I mean, i.e., um, infrastructure like we still have lead pipes in this country like like we're rome or something what we need to do we need to dig all those they're over 100 years old they need to be dug up we still have a, a really antiquated old power grid that needs to be taken down and updated we need to build all kinds of, of light like bullet trains railways throughout this entire country all of those required jobs and because the demand of jobs would be so high what would happen is that they'll be picking people off the street and then training them on the job and then that would eat up all those people who are looking for work and then people who would rather be outside working than be in a stuffy office somewhere they will leave and go into those jobs um employers um, private in the private sector would be forced to having to um, relax a lot of their requirements, you know, uh, and like where I live right now, there are two ways of getting a job. Either you have minimum two years experience or you have just recently graduated and you have a degree in that area. That's it. So if you're in one sector or, or in one field and you want to switch, you can't do that in today's job market. You can't, you're, you're locked in. So if it pays high or low, you're stuck in there. It's almost like a class. Like it's like surf. It's like you're, you're stuck in this, this cast, 
Okay, the only way to get out of that in the area that I am is to go back to school, which will put you in debt, which would make you effectively an indentured servant. Um, if there was a guaranteed jobs program that worked on infrastructure that taught you skills, okay, on the job, you don't you don't even have to have all you need is a high school diploma. We'll pull you off the street off the street educate you on plumbing or electrical or what what have you and you learn all this on on the ground and then you effectively get like a degree in electric electrician or whatever if that were available in america that would produce millions of jobs and so a lot of people some in the private sector some who are unemployed of all ages will then go there because they want to work and they want to be paid well and then that would force um, the private sector to lower its requirements, increase the wages. And so you will start to get this vibrant economy. You, you'll get, you'll have better infrastructure so it's easier for people to go to work. You'll save resources because you have a better infrastructure that's much more efficient. And people will be making more money. That's my recommendation just getting rid of the minimum wage won't do that it will just encourage employers to pay less it's not going to create more jobs no i i think that your suggestions of change contemplate that in the future the situation will be different but i'm asking you about the 46 percent of black youths who are now unemployed who probably would not be affected by changing the law this year you can yep. say that all you want but the evidence is totally against you what, what? Uh, may, may I enter this data? Where? How? How's the evidence uh, against her? I, just out of respect to Mr. George Keller, who is the assistant to the president of the University of Maryland, who writes in the New York Times, 28 January 1981, quote, in fact, overwhelming numbers of young blacks are in high school, college, at work, in the military, or at home taking care of babies. The percentage of blacks between 16 and 19 looking for a full-time job and unable to find one is actually 7.8%. Well, I can't just resolve, perhaps According to calculations based on the Bureau of Labor Statistics data. A similar figure was uh, printed some years ago in Wattenberg's book, The Real America. A lot of those big numbers come from looking, for, looking at kids who, are, who would like to have a job after school, which is fine, and I think it would be better if they had more jobs after school. But those, those numbers don't relate to what we're talking about when we talk about adult unemployment. Well, what would you say about the present 8% overall unemployment figure? That also is a lot of people who are looking for part-time jobs, or is that a general figure that indicates that we have a great many unemployed in this country? There are I a great many unemployed. One of the reasons being that we've had the kind of economy we've had for some time now, and all attempts to uh, get the inflation out of it are likely to have these adverse effects. It's, it's tragic. Should we However, should we warn her that you wrote a book about Say's Law? Well, I should. No, no. <laughs> no, I am concerned about what we do for people who are presently in a very disadvantaged position because of what's happened. We the try to remove crash. as many of the barriers as possible that have put them in that position. And you think the barriers that have put them in that position are, for example, minimum wage law? Minimum wage laws, labor unions, occupational licensing. Would you abolish labor unions? Huh? Would you abolish labor unions? You don't have to abolish labor unions. I'm saying that, that if you're asking me, what are some of the things that have done it? I'm giving you some of the things that have done it. Blacks were well represented in many occupations, skilled occupations in the South two or three generations ago to a greater extent than today. 
because two or three generations ago, those industries were not unionized. Construction, railroads, just classic examples. When we have the so-called Philadelphia plans to get blacks into the construction industry, I mean, it's, it, it would be laughable if it weren't so tragic. Blacks were heavily into the construction industry before it was unionized. Well, again, I come back to the here and now. No, oh, Assuming wait, that they what? are not heavily in the South, two or three generations of it are likely to have these adverse effects. It's really tragic. Should we However, warn, should we warn her that you wrote a book about Sayers Law? Well, I should, no, no. No, I am concerned about what we do for people who are presently in a very disadvantaged position because of what's happened in the economic We try to remove crash. as many of the barriers as possible that have put them in that position. And you think the barriers that have put them in that position are, for example, minimum wage law? Minimum wage laws, labor unions, occupational licensing. Would you abolish licensing. labor unions? Huh? Would you abolish labor unions? You don't have to abolish labor unions. I'm saying that, that if you're asking me what are some of the things that have done it, I'm giving you some of the things that have done it. Blacks were well represented in many occupations, skilled occupations, in the South. Yes. Yes, labor unions in the South discriminated against black people. Yes, that's, that doesn't mean that you should get rid of unions. It just means that unions in the South, there are some unions, unions in the South, that are racist towards black people. Two or three generations ago, to a greater extent than today, because two or three generations ago, those industries were not unionized. Construction, railroads, just classic examples. When we have the so-called Philadelphia plans to get blacks into the construction industry, I mean, it's, it, it would be laughable if it weren't so tragic. Blacks were heavily into the construction industry before it was unionized. Well, again, I come back to the here and now. Assuming that they are not heavily in the construction industry now, what would you do to cure it? Because I, I do think do away with I, I would do away with or otherwise mitigate the effects of those things that are keeping blacks out yeah, of those for, industries. Forgive me, but he has said that three times. Well, he has not taken up the cause of those people who would not be immediately affected by changing those laws. In addition to the which, acoustics he, must be very bad in here. He can't. He can't, he can't create. As he's elsewhere pointed out, to say to say that somebody should receive more money than he is now making and to pass a lot of that effect is not, in fact, to give him a job for more money. But it may very well be to cause unemployment. I gather that there are many instances where the minimum wage provisions have been waived but do not apply where the employers have nonetheless not taken advantage of it also i want to point out that he just he speaks in generalities i, I would do things to mitigate the the things that are causing black people and it's just like but you're not you're, you said the minimum wage in unions and then your your point for minimum wage falls falls flat on his face. There's no evidence, none, that suggests if you get rid of the minimum wage, it's gonna increase uh, employment. Employers hire what they need to hire. They don't hire because it's too expensive to hire more, and if the minimum wage were lower, they would hire more people. Like, and, and, and all for everyone who's disagreeing with this, this is sound, um, Microeconomics. This is sound microeconomics. So um, there exist formulas that, like, if you own a pizzeria, how long it takes for a person to produce a pizza, how many orders you get within a week, within a given amount of time to make pizzas. And then based off of that, there's a formula that hits that sweet spot of the 
most amount of people that you need to have on a given day to do X amount of pizzas. And if you have too little, then the quality, uh, the service will, it will be slower and not good. And if you have too many, then you're going to be losing money. So it's not a matter of if you, if all of a sudden labor becomes even cheaper, you're going to hire more people. Um, there are examples of this in Kansas. Remember, uh, what is this? Brownback. He totally cut taxes. It was like zero taxes. And they went and interviewed a lot of people who owned businesses and they were like, okay, so now you're not paying taxes. Are you going to hire more people? And they were like, no, I don't, I don't need more people. I'm just going to pocket the taxes. And that's what happened. Um, and with the second part, unions, he, he pointed out racist unions are what keeps black people from, um, from, from getting jobs. Okay. That's racist unions. That's not unions. He conflated the two. Well, I don't know what empirical... I'm not sure of that at all. Uh, I know that there, there are, are provisions of the law under which if you're willing to go through enough red tape, you can get certain exemptions. Uh, particularly for the person who's hiring one or two people, he may decide that it's just not worth his while. Would it be your feeling that if all the affirmative action programs were discontinued, women and minorities would go ahead much faster than they have under the affirmative action program? Yes, the, the, not my, not, it's not my opinion. Uh, the data indicate that, for example, Puerto Ricans had a higher percentage of the national average income before quotas than after. So did Mexican Americans. Blacks are about the same. So there's, again, there's a marvelous. There are so many things to describe. And th this goes back to what he was saying about how when you look at the statistics and you play with the numbers, you can figure out or find out why the numbers are. It's not just because of one policy. What were the economic, social economic policies and conditions of Puerto Ricans before the affirmative action and after affirmative action? And there are countless studies that show that white women have benefited from affirmative action the most putting the burden on other people. You're saying here's this, mag this massive program that has existed now for a decade. And you're, not, and you're unable to show me the benefits better. that have come from all this enormous controversy. Well, I certainly has been a revolution insofar as women's participation in the labor force. Not really. Not really. No, it hasn't. No, well, it hasn't. I know hasn't. that of my own knowledge. No, you don't know it of your own knowledge because I've also looked at the same thing. Lady, you don't know what you're talking about. No, no, no. I, I, I do know. I've, I've experienced. I'm a woman. I'm experienced. No, you, do. woman. You don't know. <laughs> See, this, this can fly in the '80s. This can't fly now. Like you can't sit here and basically mansplain to a woman her own experiences. It, it's, it's absurd. It would be like if she were explaining the black experience to Thomas Sowell. Like, it's absurd. Like if someone is saying, hey, this is the truth, I have lived it and the experience backs up my anecdotal experience and you go, well, no, you don't know what you're talking about. Who, who's, who's in the wrong here? Can you come up with any data, Thomas Sowell? And in the past, 
you found women overrepresented in many professional occupations, much more so than today, and you find that decline in those occupations much more highly correlated with a lower age of marriage for college women and with more childbearing. And as those two things, those two demographic factors have changed, women have also changed in their representation. So uh, there's this whole myth that's been created that this is all a function of political developments of the past uh, decade or so just will not stand up. Thank you. I like how he, he minimizes or he completely brushes off any positive policies, except for the GI Bill, that have influenced uh, minorities and then any other policies that the government has done that's negative, he highlights and goes, if we just got rid of those, then things would be great. The GI Bill mainly helped who? White men. That's a good thing. But welfare checks and all that, which also predominantly, proportionately, predominantly and proportionally helped white people, it's being lev levied as a crutch and actually poisoning the black community. This is happening during the 80s, by the way, which is um, we're, we're, we're entering the crack epidemic. Thank you very much, Mrs. Pilpel, and thank you very much, Dr. Thomas Sowell, author of Ethnic America, A History, and Markets and Minorities, and thank you, ladies and gentlemen. This is a... Uh... Man... I would like more programming like this, to be honest. Um, no clapping, no oohs, no ahs. There hasn't been any sort of, there probably were commercial cuts, like, um, you know, fading in and out and stuff like that to bring us back into the conversation. But just like this nice sort of discussion for like an hour, you don't see stuff like this. Like at most you get like a 10 minute, five minutes of people just discussing a really complicated issue. Um, but yeah, a lot of Thomas Sowell doesn't really stand up because what he does, he does two things, two talking points. Well, if you play with the data, those differences go away. And number two, well, you know, there, you're not gonna find uniformity in every, every industry, every niche, every, every field, you're not going to find the same representative, uh, uh, thing. And it's just like, well, yeah, but that <sighs> there are certain culture, social, economic and cultural reasons as to why that is. And if you cared, you can explain it. Sometimes it's, it's, it's uh, gender. Sometimes it's, it's racial. Sometimes it's um, like if, if you want to talk about banking, okay, um, namely with the Jewish community, why did that happen? Well, because for Christians, um, in order for banking to work, you have to do a form of usury. You have to be able to um, earn interest on the loans that you give. But under... Um, Christianity or Catholicism that was illegal. So they basically relied on people who were not Christian, who looked like them, which were Jewish people, um, to take care of the banking industry. 
Okay, that explains why there may be more representation um, of uh, Jewish people. I'm not saying that there is, but I'm just saying if there was, that could be an explanation for that. Or the stereotype of Jewish people. It's the same thing like with black people in, in basketball. It isn't that black people just have an affinity for basketball. It is because black people were in inner cities and the cheapest form of entertainment is a space with a hoop. And so you, you know, it's the cheapest sport to play. And people who fit that socioeconomic um, niche, in this case, are black people. They got really good at it. And um, they, they begin to dominate the sport. It's not because black people are just genetically gifted. It's a cultural, socioeconomic thing. If you look at uh, Brazil, why does, you know, uh, another cheap sport soccer what that's one of the reasons why it's a world sport because anyone can play soccer you just you don't even need to buy the gold post you just you know get four trash cans or something or anything to, to delineate a goal and um get a soccer so you know places that are you know we, we would say systemically or or poorer than other countries are, are better you know at, at soccer because like i'm going down a rabbit hole um so yeah i mean there are explanations to describe why there are niches why niches happen but he just he just brushes it all off and that that's what uh, just doesn't doesn't hold up anyway i've seen it this is probably gonna be like two hours we're gonna try to cut 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 it down um thanks for the request i'm, I'm gonna do more thomas Sowell because like people people need to put this guy on blast anyway thanks